All right, so Haggai, first up, two chapters for little Haggai. Little small guy. If we had to kind of look at these last three as an overview, Haggai accuses the people of tragically misdirecting their priorities. And so the context is, uh, we're kind of skipping context here. We have been talking about being in the middle of kind of the um, exile. Now this is post-exile. Does anybody remember what the first job was for the Israelites after exile? So they were allowed to come back. They should have been building the temple. They should have been building the temple. That was what they were instructed to do. That was their first their first job. So around 536 BC, they began that project. And if you know your Bibles, you remember that's uh, told to us in Ezra and Nehemiah. And there was a, a little bit of a gap. Does anybody remember? There was actually a 16-year gap. They started it in like 536, and then they picked up again around 520. Why did they? Did they just take 16 years off, or do you remember what happened? Well, there was those guys that came and threatened to kill them, right? Yeah, there was all those guys that came and threatened to kill them, right? Resistance from the surrounding nations. They didn't really like the idea that Israel was back and talking about building a temple. They harassed them. He resumed it, right? Yep. Yeah, Yeah, because... uh, they had to work with one, one, one hand. Yep, sword in the trowel. Yeah, to defend. Yep. Okay. Yep. Where's my sword? Yeah. Back there. That was in building the wall. Yep. I don't have a trowel. I'm not a true Spurgeon guy. I don't have a sword in the trowel. I should. So if we look at Haggai, then that's kind of our context. If we're just going to look around in chapter one again, there's more of a summary. We're doing three books tonight, so we're doing more of a more of a flyover. Fly overview, as opposed to a biblical overview, I guess you might say. Um, The Lord says, look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And so starts off with a bang because the Lord is uh, confronting his people, like saying, hey, you know, glad you guys are getting cozy and everything. Like, is this a time for you guys to be worried about building your own houses? What about my house? Like, consider your ways, he says. And the people actually turn. The people actually change. Uh, verse 5. Oh, we already read verse 5. Well, let me read. I only read up to verse 4. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. What do you think that's saying? God provided for them, and because uh, the harvest is from God. Yep. And, um, <clears throat> but um, they have sown much but harvested little, so they're trying to do it on their own strength instead of trusting God. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's like, who gave you all this, right? Yeah. And still, where are your priorities? You're focused on the wrong things. Right. You're focused on filling your own bellies, right? And meanwhile, this was the mission that I gave you. It's that kind of quintessential cart before the horse kind of thing, right? They're, they're worried about themselves first, but God says, worry about me first. I'll take care of you, right? And they're already and it's kind of the opposite from when the Israelites took the promised land. God promised them crops they didn't plant. Yes. And right. Yes. Now and, and very good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which which yeah that says a lot, right? They walked yeah. into mm-hmm. wine that they didn't make and right. fridges full of food and you yep. know all kinds of stuff. Now it's that's all gone. So yeah. Now they have to start over. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they got used to that, right? Yeah. So if we had to do a theme. Um, we have a theme suggested there for us. Yahweh is turning the hearts of his people to seek his glory and to please him in rebuilding his temple, which serves as a type of the greater glory of the coming end times temple. So God's turning the hearts of his people to seek his glory and please him in rebuilding his temple, and that's going to point to the greater glory of the end times uh, temple. And so... First of all, we look at whose pleasure and whose glory. And if we look at verses 7 and 8 in chapter 1, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So the Lord is frustrating their plans. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to do their own thing, and it's not working for them. And it's, God is trying to get their attention, saying, hey, you should be uh, working on my house. Also, just biblical proof here that cutting down trees is pleasing to God. So just want to yeah. that. <laughs> go up to the woods and get the trees and come back down. So. I do have a lot of dead trees. Trees are good. So again, he's telling them to consider your ways. What kind of things do we think about when he says consider? If somebody said, Steve, consider your ways. Not that I've ever said that. Thank you, Steve. Sorry. <laughs> I thought it was a general question to the group. Is your name Steve? How are you spending your time? What activities are you engaging in? Yeah. Are you just playing video games all day? Yeah. Or smoking cigarettes? Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Some pretty brutal exactly. stuff. It's um it's just a general call to be like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing right now? You know, what should you be doing, right? We can say that to our kids. Cindy, maybe you can use that. Consider your ways. What are you doing right now? Just think about that. He's telling them to think. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> Paul's like, am I in trouble? No, it's just, <laughs> just a conversation. It's not about you, buddy. Don't worry. So <clears throat> this is really important. They're back in the promised land. Like, this is a big yeah. deal. And they're already kind of veering off the path here. And God's saying, hey, consider your ways. Um, I have a note that's reminding us of Matthew 5.16. Right? Remember Jesus' command that we are to let our light shine before men so that they may see our good deeds and glorify not ourselves but our Father in heaven. This whole thing is not for their glory. It's for the glory of the Lord. And they're... Uh, letting it back up into their own pleasure and their own agenda, right? Um, so we also see that Yahweh is sovereign over the heart. If we look at verses 13 and 14, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the people stirred up, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. What do we see happening there? So, verse Haggai has another message, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. He says, I'm with you. And then what happens? They get to it. They get to it. The Lord stirred up their hearts, and so we see the Lord is sovereign over their hearts, right? They get to work. They, they actually start doing it. Um, in chapter 2, verse 19, if we skip all the way down there, we see, uh, Is your seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. And so we have little hints of a blessing that's coming, right? And it's going to be a little far off. He's like, uh, you haven't actually grown anything yet. There's no seed in the barn, all right? There's no fruit on the trees yet, but I will bless you. You know, just continue on. Get your priorities straight and continue on. So Yahweh is sovereign over the heart. And then the third theme maybe um, is the greater glory. And... We've already uh, hinted at it, but verse 9 says, the Lord says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, although the, the first temple, if you do get to Israel, right, even the, the ruins are just absolutely massive. And that's nothing compared to what the temple used to be in the first century uh, with Herod. But the first temple was definitely massive, right? 
Now think about it. Try to put yourself in the perspective of somebody who knew the first temple, maybe grew up or heard stories about how wonderful the first temple was, and you come back to complete and utter destruction, complete and utter ruins. And the Lord says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And then you're there with a, a couple rocks and a trowel and, and a sword. And a sword. <laughs> right? Yeah. You necessarily, do you necessarily believe that? Yeah, yeah, not really. How, how are we going to do this? Yeah. Like, Seems impossible. Anybody remember, I think it's in Nehemiah, where they laid the foundation for the temple and everybody stopped and they had a, a, a worship session, right? And there were people rejoicing, but then there's another line in Ezra that said the people who were crying and weeping were louder than the people that were rejoicing. Mm -hmm. And they're crying and weeping because... These people are rejoicing over this foundation, but it's like a miserable excuse for a foundation. And they're like, they, they saw the old, they remember the old temple. And they're like, this is pathetic. Like, this is not, this is they nothing compared to where we will. Seen it though, 70 right? years? Some of them would have been 70 years. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but legends certainly would have been yeah, told right. about it, right? Yeah. Um, and the idea that, are we ever going to get back to where we were, like as a nation? Like, is, are we, really? God's going to bless us for real, right? So it's, it's kind of a mystery. Why does God say that the greater glory is, is still going to come in this temple, right? Um, kind of the key to it, I'll just read this. Haggai is saying that this great temple, greater than all prior, will be built in the time of Yahweh's chosen ser uh, servant, and we get that from chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. He says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders, and the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It's The signet ring is a throwback to a passage in Jeremiah where the idea is that he says that uh, God's, uh, Zerubbabel's ancestor, he says, as the signet ring will be pulled off and discarded. Right? It's an illustration. So it's not pointing to this particular temple and this particular time. It's pointing to an illusion or a metaphor or a symbol of that there's somebody that's going to come. That signet ring will come off and it will go to someone else. It's like saying a crown, but yep. in this case a signet Yeah, it's a sign of, of the, the kingship, right? And the royalty, right? And so can you think of anyone who, you know, might be in the future, maybe when he was walking around, maybe getting in trouble to compare himself to the temple. It could be the Messiah, could it? It could very well be, right? Matthew twelve six, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. And I'll bet when Jesus drops something like that, people are going, whoa, there's going to be a greater temple coming. We never saw it. And it certainly isn't this Herod temple, because that's not really our temple. It's Herod's temple anyway, right? Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are the temple of the living God, right? Peter says that Christ is the chief cornerstone, right, of the temple. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, we're like living stones, being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, right? You see people are like, oh, the temple is coming together through Jesus in the church. And so ultimately, yes, this does. It's another messianic prophecy that points to the greater glory of the yeah. temple that will be in the Messiah. So Jesus is the builder, the foundation. We are the stones. And it's our purpose as God's temple to bring glory to God. So a quick flyover of Haggai. Let's jump over to Zechariah. 
This is a little bigger, but we're not gonna take that detailed of a look at it because we just don't have the time to do that. Theme of Zechariah, they say in your little handout there. Well, before we get there, contact Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai. They're prophesying about the same time. And Zechariah looks forward to the coming Messiah as well. Talking about, again, what does the return of, what is the exile now being over? What does that mean for us as a nation, what, for the future? Right? The theme of Zechariah, they say, is this. Yahweh has restored the old ways to prefigure and prophesy unto new ways in the future. The grand restoration from exile by the coming Messiah. Again, we're talking about prefiguring, we're talking about prophecy into the future. I love that term, the grand restoration from exile into what's happening. So stuff that's bigger than just us. So a couple themes they give us. The coming messianic priest king. And if we jump all the way into the middle, right? So this is a also a chiastic uh, structure, which means... The, the point of this structure is going to be in the middle. So in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew writing, right? Sometimes you have almost like a book. When you open it up, you have, you know, one kind of half of it looks like this and the other half is kind of another mirror structure. But the point of the whole thing is in the middle of the book. And so the middle of the book is around chapter 6. And so this is where the whole thing kind of comes together. In chapter 6, uh, 9 through 15... See, they pull these themes together. The word of the Lord came to me in verse 9 of chapter 6. Take from the exiles in Heldel, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the Branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Oh, contemporary of Haggai here. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So, I don't know if you caught that, right? So he's, we have the branch, Capital B, which if you know Jeremiah, you know that that in and of itself is a messianic prophecy. He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear royal honor, and he's going to sit on the rule and rule on his throne. So what is that telling us? We got ruling. We got a throne. What what kind of figure is this? It's a king. Okay. But we also see in the very next verse, or the very next part of verse 13, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the counsel of the Lord should be between them both. So, it's a priest king? That's well, kind of strange. We have priests or king, but now this guy's going to be a priest king. And this whole thing, of course, is being put together by a prophet. So this is a prophetic event of, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say a prophet, priest, and king, right? And again, the highest level of the prophet, priest, and king is going to be the branch himself. It's going to be the Messiah. And so once again, the, the whole book kind of comes together in Jesus, the Messiah. There's a lot of famous quotes in Zechariah that you might remember. There's a lot of visions in Zechariah. Uh, we have the vision of the horseman. In chapter 1, the, the four horns representing the empires, of course, that defeated Israel. Uh, the measuring line vision. We have the golden lampstand, flying scrolls, women in baskets, flying all squirrels. kinds of crazy. Flying squirrels? <laughs> flying scrolls. Four chariots. So all of this points to kind of what's, what's going on that leads up to the coming of the Messiah. Right? Uh, Hebrews 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are priest 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews calls God himself, or Jesus himself, right? A priest. So we know that there's going to be a great high priest, right, that will come. But also one who will rule. So Jesus, the perfect priest. What's the function of a priest in the Old Testament scheme of things? Well, different. One of them was to do the sacrifices. Yeah. Yep. Perform the sacrifices. Yep. They yep. interceded between God and man. Yep. So if they're in the middle, right, they're interceding for the people to God, right? But if you're a prophet, it's flipped, right? They're saying the word of God to the people, right? So and and Jesus does both of those things. What's that? Temple, right? He was the only one allowed in the temple. In the most holy, well, that, yeah, in the, time, in the that. holy place, and then the right. high priest is the only one in the most holy place. Right. Yeah, and only once a year. Yeah, yeah once a yeah. year. Yom Kippur, right? No, Rosh Hashanah. Is that right? Well, oh, no, maybe it could be Yom Yeah, Day of Atonement. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rosh yep. They go hand in hand. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So are we... <laughs> no, it's okay. So we see this pointing to this mysterious coming priest king. Right? Who brings peace. Who brings peace. Every time I see the word peace, I kind of like, okay, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. In uh, chapter 7, we see Zechariah again kind of raging against some of the things that uh, the people are doing. Um, one of the most pointed kind of accusations in the Old Testament from a prophet. Um, chapter 7, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh month for those 70 years, was it for me? that you fasted? And when you ate and when you drank, did you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the southern and the lowlands were inhabited? Right? He's like, hey, all, this stuff, all that stuff that you did, was that for me or was that for you? All those religious activities, look at me, I'm fasting. Right? He calls them right out and says, I don't think that was for me. That was more for you. It was more the religious show we have going on. And in verse 8 of chapter 7, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Something we'll be talking about on Sunday. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil in your heart. Right? This sounds like a theme. Yeah. <laughs> time and time again. He's basically saying, act like the people you should be. I don't care if you're sacrificing. I don't care if you're holding the feast and the fast. That's for you if you're not doing the other things, if you're not legit. Right? Yeah. Verse 11, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Mm. Yeah. I like that stubborn shoulder because you can really see someone just <laughs> turning away giving you the stubborn shoulder the cold shoulder as it is yeah um, there's hints of the global nature of the gospel in chapter 8 verse 7 behold I will save my people from the east country and from the west country I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. It's like, whoa, hold on. You're going to bring people from the east and the west and everywhere? And they're going to be your people? Hints of the global nature, right, of what is coming. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And if you track back to chapter 2, he says the same thing uh, in verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So he's saying it again. So you can imagine kind of the confusion at this, right? Are they thinking, like, this is what the Messiah is going to bring? Is this, like, the future future? Like, So, of course, Jesus is the one that uh, inaugurates the new covenant. So it's not just Israel that is able to come to God. It's anyone who comes through faith in Jesus. All through the coming Messianic priest king. In the second part of the book, uh, Zechariah again has a, a Messianic message there. In chapter 9, 
the whole book kind of changes. It focuses more intently on God's final redemption of his people. God judges his enemies, because what would a minor prophet be without judgment on enemies? We've seen them all. He lists them, calls them all out. He says something in chapter 9, verse 9, which you might find familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? On a coat, the foal of a donkey. Where do we see that? Meatball question. Matthew. Yeah, that's where Jesus does in the... the, (laughs) Sorry, I don't have any meatballs. In the the triumphant entry, right? So, again, hints of who's coming uh, in the Messiah. Um, he comes down really hard on the shepherds again in chapter 10, in verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like his majestic steed. And I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone the tent peg, the battle, and every ruler all together. So. But when he mentions shepherds, he's not talking about shepherds in the field, but the sheep, he's talking about the priests, right? Yep. Yeah. Talking about those, the leaders the of Israel. The shepherds in the field are just out there. Yep. Trying it's, to make a living. Which again, when you see that um, Peter in Hebrews, and they, they, they use that metaphor again, the shepherds, right? And Jesus says he is the chief shepherd, and we are the sheep, and my sheep know my voice, and all of that. So it's a metaphor that's continued the whole way through the Bible. Well, why is this anger hot against the shepherds? Why is he so mad at them? An incorrect message they're giving. Yep, incorrect message. There are a lot of corruption, right? All of that said, they're not caring for the poor, all the stuff they're supposed to be doing. And it also says that, against uh, once again, the, the leaders will be judged more severely. Right, this you have a responsibility. Like I put you in charge, and you're a faithless shepherd. And he takes that very, very seriously. In chapter twelve, we see a little bit more uh, hope of salvation. In verse seven, for the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Once again. Harkening back to the Messiah who will come through the line of David, through Judah. He says this is how it's going to come. Um, more messianic references in 12.10. They will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him they, ha- they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Again, something that has come up in the, the crucifixion narratives. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That fountain opened through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, right? The house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, 13.7 says that he will be rejected, he will be oppressed, I believe it's Jesus himself who quotes, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered in mm-hmm. verse 7. Right? So we see that oppression that will happen to the chief shepherd, Jesus. He'll be crucified, he'll be oppressed, right? he'll be rejected. And at the end, he kind of leaves us at the end of 14. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifices in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. He gives this future picture of the entire city, like down to the pots and pans that say holy to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord. Every a little bit. Will be dedicated. Looking forward to a time beyond the exile, right when that priest king will come, and um, that's again where it gets picked up in the New Testament in Matthew as well. 
So Zechariah kind of leaves us on a hopeful note. And last, but certainly not least, Malachi. That wasn't, still wasn't right? It's close. Closer. Okay. Late 5th century BC, people are drifting into secularism. The last prophet before the day of the Lord. All right, so we're getting, getting closer. What's, what happens between Malachi and Matthew? Anybody know? The books that aren't in here. The <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's weird stuff in there. Some of them. Yeah. How many years are between? How many years is in this one page? It's like between the new. Four hundred years. Yeah. It's like four hundred years. Do we have anything recorded in those 400 years from the divine canon of Scripture? We do not. No, we God, do not. God goes silent. God goes silent. Why do you think that is, that God goes silent for 400 years? Wow. Do you imagine being that and just hearing these stories from your generations before you that God spoke and God did all these things and God said this and okay? Well, we have record that he's done this before. You know, We don't have prophets today. Yeah. True. So Very we true. know it's not, it, this isn't new. This isn't the first time this has happened. I actually was going to announce tonight my prophetic apostolic international uh, ministry. Uh, <laughs> Good reaction. Very nice. She was, she was up and leaving for those at home. What? We're becoming an adjunct of Bethel Church now. Oh, yeah. Everybody's on their phones going, where's the no. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, we don't have prophets these days walking around in the same uh, power and authority as the apostles and things like that. Right? So, yeah, there's a big gap, right, between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I mean, four centuries is a long time, yeah. right? Uh, most guys think that, uh, of course, the Lord had all that in his sovereign plan. And this wasn't an accident. You know, he's not like, man, I've had an ad out in Indeed for prophets for 400 years and I can't find any good help. No, it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> anything like that. It was intentional. Um, and some guys think that, you know, what happened in those 400 years? We pick up in Matthew, we pick up in, well, we have the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. right? We've got roads, we've got infrastructures, we've got everything poised for the gospel to go. Well, it's right before that. Yeah, yeah. And the, so, and the prophecy about that. Yeah, so it's like it ends, and you have this kind of like, but the Lord knows what He's doing, right? We don't know everything, but prophesied all the way up through that. Yep, you know? absolutely. Were there other large gaps though in the Old Testament? There was other large. There gaps. were definitely large yeah. gaps. Yeah. yeah. So, so why would they be, you know, confused? Yeah, even the, I mean, you know, even decades. You know, it's wow. like the story of Saul is, you know, you focus on Saul's demise. I just read it in the daily read but i mean saul reigned for 42 years yeah you know and it's just like he gets you know a couple paragraphs you know of, of everything that happened to him that's all bad but before that he had 41 and a half years or whatever it was where you know we don't get to know about that either because it was just kind of how long was the roman empire in existence so it fell in 70 right and before so probably i'm not sure the exact dates Sometime BC before that, I'd have to look it up. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I think it probably reached its heyday in what the first through the third centuries AD, I would imagine. Yeah, uh, at least through 300, right? Yeah, yeah. With Augustine and, and then they yep. let those Caesars in, and they yeah. yeah. made salad of the whole thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So our theme, Yahweh's people are beginning to drift away again. So Yahweh will need to come and visit them soon. Malachi asks a series of questions, right? And this kind of sets up a lot of these themes too. In chapter 1, verse 2, uh, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Mm -hmm. It's like people talking back to God. God says, I love you. Try, do not say that to your spouse. You love me. Oh, you love me? How exactly have you loved me? That's not a real good comeback, right? But that's what, that's what Malachi is saying here. God says, I loved you. And he says, oh, really? How 
of the people. How have you loved me? All right. Um, then the Lord accuses them. Uh, look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. He's like, hey guys, like I'm, I'm Yahweh. <laughs> Where's my fear? Where's my honor? Mm. Oh, priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Like, tell us. Like, they should kind of know this, shouldn't they? And the Lord answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. He goes on to say, hey, you know what you're supposed to be doing and you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. You're offering me the worst of the flock. <laughs> the blind animals, the lame animals, right? He says, what's that? Go back to Cain. Absolutely, going yeah. back to Cain, right? Not, not the best. You're offering me the worst, right? And so in this is kind of theme number one. Yahweh will not be despised. He's building this case against them. He's saying, you're not honoring me. He says, my name is great, and, and you're not honoring my great name. You're, you're not doing what I've called you to do. Um, he rebukes the priests in chapter 2. He says, now, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and curse your blessings. He says, listen, I, I'm not going to be despised, right? I'm not going to let you guys get away with this. Um, he goes on to say, talking about, again, pastors, well, they didn't call them pastors, shepherds, leaders, teachers, right? Uh, in verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. This is what the ideal is. Mm. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But... You have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. He's going after the false teachers there. He's going after those people that aren't legit. And this should be a big conviction to false teachers today. He's like, this is what you should be doing. You should have true instruction in your mouth. You should have a life that reflects that. You should walk in peace and uprightness, and many should turn away from sin because of you. But that's not what's happening because of your false teaching. So Yahweh will not be despised. Um, neither will Yahweh allow uh, marital or really covenant infidelity. What's the big deal of a marriage covenant? Yahweh. Why does God care about marriage so much? And he's going to harp on them about their marriage. Why does God care about marriages so much? Because it runs parallel to our relationship uh, to him. Yeah. Right. If you uh, can't be faithful in your marriage, yeah. how can you be faithful to God, yeah. right? At the end of the day, it's a covenant, right? Yeah. Right. And we're in a covenant relationship with God through yeah. Jesus Christ. Right. Because my grandfather always said, um, uh, of like people not getting married. He said, uh, the devil sleeps in between you. Oh. On, on the same pillow. Yeah. Unequally yoked. Yeah. And that covenant is equally yoked. Yeah. It needs to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we stand up there and we make a lifelong covenant. You guys know that, right? It's a lifelong covenant. We haven't covered that. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you, you still know what you're... Still <laughs> lifelong, but... Yeah, it's, it's it started when I was born. <laughs> For the rest of your life, after you come together in a covenant, from there until you die. Okay, got you're, it. You're with Noel. Okay. Yes. Yes. You're, you're good. Yes. <laughs> that would have been an awkward group moment. So he says this in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, right? Or let's go back up to 13, get some context. This is the second thing you do. The cover, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Oh, boo-hoo, Lord, we're giving you these offerings, and you're not answering our prayers. And say in verse 14, why not? Why is he not, why is he not regarding us? 
It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. There you go, Steve. Guard yourself in your spirit, brother. Do not be faithless to the wife of your youth. Okay? So take a good wedding sermon. So it's important to him. It's really, really important to him as a covenant. Right? How vital is you know the marriage covenant that we make? Right? It's very, very important. Right. And God's a jealous, jealous God. He does not want to share that with anyone else. Just like uh, yeah, couples, just, right? You don't yeah. share your life. Uh, generally, generally else. no one else is invited into the marriage covenant. Right. At least in our form of Christianity. right? Usually only husband and wife. Yeah, yeah and it's, that's rightfully so. Don't take that step lightly. No, absolutely not. There's a verse in 1 Peter 3.7 that is a scary verse, especially for husbands. Because likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel because they're heirs with you of the grace of life. And here comes the scary part. So that your prayers may not be hindered. This is picked up in the New Testament here as a reminder of the, the importance of the marriage covenant. Right? He says, husbands, live with your wives. It's, it's present tense in the Greek. Always be living with your wives in an understanding way. And we show honor to them. Right? And he says that's so important that if you don't do that, your prayers may be hindered. That's that powerful. Right? And he said the same thing in Malachi. It's like, oh, you're giving me sacrifices. That's really cute. I don't care. You're a terrible husband. Let's work on that. <laughs> Let's work on doing what you're supposed to be doing, and then we'll worry about all these little sacrifices that you're giving me. Right? Because it's a reflection of how you treat a covenant in general. Right? So very, very important. And God's not going to allow covenant or marital uh, infidelity. Also in ver or chapter 3, God will not be robbed. And we'll have another question and answer session here. Um, famous verse in 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have many you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Well yet you are robbing me. But you say, How, Lord, have we robbed you? And the Lord responds, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Mm. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there's no more need. Right? So Yahweh's saying, be legit. Guys, like, you know, if you repent with, with your whole heart, if you return to me, I'm going to return to you. That's how this works. You know that, right? He says, instead, you're still holding out on me. And he says, how is, you're robbing me. So how does he say they're robbing God? In what form? It's the they're not, yeah. They're not giving the first fruits. Yeah. He gave his first fruits. He expects the first fruits. Yeah, yeah. So a tithe, right? Literally from the word means tenth doesn't exactly mean it has to be a tenth but it's like that's a principle you're, you're carving off something of your of what the lord has given you right think about just even if it is a tenth for sake of argument you get to keep 90 percent of it right <laughs> and the lord says 10 percent of it you know make it honorable to me a gift to me for uh, a creating you uh, giving you breath and strength and a brain and abilities to do all the things to make this money in the first place Right, so give it back to me. And they're, they're holding it back. They're not giving it to him. They're being stingy with him. God yeah. doesn't want our leftovers. God doesn't want our leftovers. If they had him, if they had listened, we would have to have welfare. It's very true. Programs that we have to have because it's very true. give it willingly. You do, you do see those statistics fly by, right? Like 97% of Christians 
don't tithe or you know something like that or if everybody did give just 10 percent like world hunger would be gone everything yeah. else would be gone you know but we don't we still uh, hold back and he says in verse 10 bring the full tithe into the storehouse and he even challenges them mm -hmm. he says put me to the test on this yep see if i won't bless you see if you if you won't have need after that is, this any, is there any other place in the Bible where God says to test him on this? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I've heard that this is the only place in the Bible where God says to test, put, you yeah. know, test him on it. Which is a slippery slope. Like, do yeah. we do we give to get? Like, you know, hey, yeah. God, did you see what I dropped in the offering plate this this week? <laughs> Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the era of the prosperity gospel, right? right? That's the, the seed offering. You know, if you give me $1,000, I guarantee God will give you back 10 times that much. You'll see that late at night in some channels you shouldn't be watching. Right. The blessing may not be in this world. It may not be in this world. Right. Or <clears throat> it, it may not be in the form of money anyway. Or whatever exactly. Be, you know? Yeah, it may not exactly. be in the form of money either. Right. right. So Yahweh will not be robbed and we're still, uh, still called <coughs> to give back to God a small percentage of what he's given to us. And we should be doing that as Corinthians tells us with joy and not under compulsion. <coughs> God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah. Right. Well, it goes back to the heart thing. How it works our motivation. Back to the heart thing. Absolutely. Able, able and yep. the same Melanie thing. and I can tell you from personal testimony that we have consistently given to the Lord and He has consistently blessed us. <coughs> Absolutely. Yes. Never, we, we ever we failed us. the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh -huh. yep. Me in the building. Oh. Yep. You in the building are not getting along right now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, so it's important. I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll hear, unfortunately, and, and um, people will be like, I just can't afford to tithe. And it's like, that's such a tragic statement because it's, it's totally backwards of, you know, it's like when I get enough or whatever I have left or whatever, it's like, no, that's why it's <coughs> first fruits, right? You give to the Lord what you've decided to give to the Lord and the rest is what you will do for your own needs. But we, we give, and we continue to. So. And then last, it ends with the notion of this Elijah-like figure coming before the Messiah. There's going to be judgment coming first. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when the arrogant and evildoers will be all stubble. That day uh, is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So ends the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. says, this prophecy of judgment, and he says, you know, one day that the Lord will have his day, right? That day is in the future. But first, right, what has to come first Elijah. is the Messiah. And before the Messiah, there's got to come this Elijah-like figure. Right? That's why they were asking John the Baptist if he was Elijah. Yep. Yeah, so then fast forward where the New Testament picks up, right? 400 years of silence, and then suddenly, whammo, you have this weird-looking guy in the wilderness, dressed like Elijah, eating bugs and honey and doing things and saying, repent, right, for the... the Right? One. For the Lord has come. That? He's preparing. What's that? Is that John the Baptist too? Is that a prophecy? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Elijah and, and uh, Jesus himself says that prophecy in Malachi refers to John the Baptist. Right? Yep. He, is, he is the Elijah to come. Right? And so he looked like Elijah. He acted like Elijah. And, and so put those two things together. Right? You have This is the very last thing that the Old Testament says before it closes. And then Matthew starts... After the genealogies, we see John the Baptist immediately, and it should be a giant, should be a giant kind of click in the brain, like okay, 
This is what he talked about. Here we are. We're in the Messianic age. Mm. Right? So very good stuff to close out our little minor prophets rally towards the end there. And we've got a little study guide in case you wanted to learn more. Wendy's all excited. <laughs> if you want to learn all of the details of all the crazy visions in Zechariah, I believe Pastor Ryan preached through that. And I believe it's probably in his book somewhere. That was his whole thesis, was uh, apocalyptic Old Testament prophecy. All right, we did it. So we're going to take two weeks off, two Wednesdays off. Yeah, I'll come back to Wednesday nights. With a degree? With a degree. Maybe I'll even I'll get it framed and hung up by then. And then we will. Uh, what's that? I do have a spot right there in the middle. Let's see how big it is. Um, sometimes the doctorate ones are um, portrait instead of landscape, so I don't know. We'll see. What's that? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll see. All right. Let me pray for us. Okay. Father, thank you again for your goodness, Lord. We look at these, these prophetic books, and there's, there's so much more in here that we have time to go into on a night like tonight. Uh, we thank you for uh, just this overview, this kind of flyover that we can look at these big themes Lord, we're encouraged uh, to see on, on our side of redemptive history that you fulfilled the prophecies, that the righteous branch has come, that the Messiah has come. Lord, we look forward uh, to the day when we will be with you forever. Although we think about that day of judgment, and of course it is still scary to us to think about, uh, Lord, but let our hope be completely trusting in the Lord Jesus. Uh, so we thank you for the surety of that promise. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. Pray that you will dismiss us with your blessing, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.